continuing our our preaching series through the book of Romans, and we come this morning to Romans chapter 8, verses 29 to 30. We looked last week at verse 28, and we'll read that verse again, so we'll read verses 28 to 30, but the, the focus in the message will be on verses 29 to 30 this morning. And before I read, I invite you to bow as we ask for the Spirit's anointing on His Word. Let's pray together. Lord God, as we come to Your Word this morning, I pray that You would pour out Your Holy Spirit into our hearts. And I pray that You would give us eyes to see and give us ears to hear and give us hearts that are cultivated and conditioned to receive the truths of your word. I pray, O oh Lord, that these truths may be planted deep in us to, pr to produce a, a deep and abiding assurance, that they may bear fruit of transformation that will be for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you are able, I do invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word, Romans 8, verses 28 to 30. So Paul, in these verses, really concludes this, this section on suffering and glory that we have been looking at over the last several weeks. And he says this, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. He may be seated. My family uh, will tell you, and I, I've maybe shared this before with you as well, that I am a planner. Uh, I, I like to have a plan, so when we go on vacation, I'm the one, I, need to, I need to know what the plan is, where we're going to stay, what we're going to do, um, and with, of course, uh, contingency plans for, for bad weather, for unexpected events that may come up, I like to have things planned planned out. Every Monday on my day off, uh, I, I always start the day the same way. I get up in the morning, I gather everybody, and I... They, my family will say that the, pretty much the first words to come out of my mouth, let's make a plan. What are we going to do today? I want to have it planned out. I want to know what the day is going to, going to hold. My family has uh, said, in fact, that when I die, they're going to put those words on my tombstone, let's make a plan. That's, that's just kind of who I am. So I like plans. I find, I find comfort and security in having a plan. And I find it really quite unsettling if there isn't a plan. Lori's all about spontaneity, and, and you know, that, that has its place, and there's, there's, there's excitement in that. But I find it a bit unsettling. I like to have a plan. And so our text this morning is a deeply comforting text, uh, not only for me and people like me, but I think for, for all believers, whether you're a planner or not, there, it is a deeply comforting text because we see that God has a plan for us. God has a plan for us. He has a plan for our salvation. He has made this plan before we came to be, and he will carry, through, carry out this plan to the very end. 
We see in these verses the, the sequence of, of God's saving work in our lives. Uh, so Paul mentions these five key uh, stages in God's plan of salvation for us. And some have called these, these five stages the golden chain of salvation. If I could put my own little twist on it, I, I, would, I like to call it, or I would call it the, the golden chain of God's sovereign grace in our salvation. We see in these verses that God is sovereign over every stage of our salvation. It is he who initiates our salvation. And it is he who sees it through to the end. And that is what makes this a deeply comforting text. Because the question of our salvation then rests not on the shifting sands of human decision, but on the solid rock of God's sovereign purpose and plan. And so as we walk through these five links in the golden chain this morning, it's my, and, and it's, it's, there's a little bit of, and maybe it's maybe a little bit technical, a little bit doctrinal at times, but as we walk through them, it's my hope and prayer that we'll not only come to a deeper understanding of what these five uh, stages, what these five things mean, but more importantly, we'll come to a deeper assurance of God's saving work in our lives. That's my prayer for us this morning. So here we go. We'll walk through these five links together. The first link in the chain is foreknowledge. Paul says, for those God foreknew, he also predestined. Now, some have drawn from these words the idea that God saves people based on something he sees, uh, he sees in them before they came to be, right? So, so God, in a sense, looks down the corridors of time, and he sees those who will come to a, a, will come to a saving faith in Christ. He sees those who will, who will receive the good news of Jesus, who will put their faith in him, who will make a decision for Christ. God looks down the corridors of time, and he sees that, and he saves people based on that foresight or that foreknowledge. That's not what Paul is saying. That's reading something into the text that is not there. When when Paul says that, that God foreknew us, he is speaking of God's decision, God's decision. In fact, everything in this text is all about what God has done, not about what we have done. So he's speaking of God's decision, not our decision, uh, God's decision to enter into a relationship with us to set his love and affection on us. And we'll see that as we explore what this word means. And so the word foreknew uh, comes from the Greek uh, pro-gnosko, pro meaning before or ahead of time, gnosko meaning knowledge. The word can either mean, and, and, and equally can either mean to know beforehand or to choose beforehand. Just to give you an example of that, that second, so context determines what, what meaning, what flavor it takes. To give you an example of that second meaning, to choose beforehand, the same word, prognosco, is used in 1 Peter 1, verse 20, to describe uh, Christ, where Peter says, He, that is Christ, was chosen before the foundation of the world. The Greek word gnosko has its roots in the Hebrew yada. And, and the Hebrew yada is a word that is, that is, its meaning is broad in scope. And it's often used in the sense of, of intimate knowing in the context of a love relationship. 
which is really important because that, that meaning then carries over into gnosko as well. But in Hebrew, we see that again and again and again. For to, to know, to yada in Hebrew is often uh, to, to, to know in an intimate, loving way. In fact, uh, in Genesis chapter 4, when it, we read that, that uh, Adam, uh, whatever translation you want to use, Adam slept with his wife, Adam made love to his wife, as the newer NIV says, you get the sense of what he's talking about. That's the Hebrew yada. Is that, 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 that sexual intimacy is one of the ways to translate yada. Uh, so it's that kind of intimate knowing that in the context of a love relationship. So, for example, God says of his people Israel through the prophet Amos, uh, he says, you only have I known yada. Of all the peoples of the earth, God isn't saying that I don't know anybody else. He's saying, you only have I chosen. You are my, my special, dearly loved, uh, my chosen people whom I set my affection on. You only have I chosen or loved of all the peoples of the earth. We see the same idea again through the prophet Hosea, where God says to his people, it was I who knew you in the wilderness. And again, the sense of that is it was I who cared for you, or it was I who loved you as my chosen people as you wandered in the wilderness. And so the, the, the foreknowledge of God here in Romans 8 is, is his affectionate, distinguishing love. That, that is the sense of what Paul has taught, of what this word means. To be foreknown is to be chosen by God as the object of his love. It is God's sovereign choice to set his affection on his chosen people. It has nothing to do with, what, with, with anything that God sees in us. And it has everything to do with his own gracious choice to love a people who are unworthy of his love. And I think we see the sense of this very clearly in Deuteronomy chapter 7 where Moses is speaking to God's chosen people, the people that he brought uh, out of Egypt and, and is about to lead into the promised land. And Moses said to them, the Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples. In other words, it's not because God saw something so great and so special in you that God said, man, they are, they are so great, I, I, I can't help but loving them. No, Moses says, you were the fewest of all peoples. No, it was not because of anything in you that God set his affection on you, but it was because the Lord loved you, that he redeemed you from the land of slavery. He loved you because he loved you, not because of anything he saw in you. The foreknowledge of God is his electing grace, his sovereign choice to create a people for himself and to set his affection on them. R.C. Sproul said that we could reasonably translate the first part of verse 29 in this way, and I, and I love the way that he, he does this. So he says you could translate it this way. Those whom he foreloved, those whom he knew in a personal, intimate, redemptive sense from all eternity, he predestined. I think that captures the sense of foreknowledge very, very well. What Paul is saying then is that God has chosen a people for himself and he has chosen to fix a special attention on them, to set, to set his saving love on them. And so our salvation has, it's, this is important, this is the first link in the chain. Our salvation, Paul is saying, has its origin in the eternal counsel of God, not in us. 
It, it is God alone who sets his saving purpose and plan for us into motion. That's how the chain begins. The second link in the chain, then, is predestination. We, I'll try to do this briefly. We could, I, could do a, I could do a whole ser- summer sermon series on predestination alone. Um, I, I won't, but, but I could. So Paul says, those God foreknew, he also predestined. The word predestined is a translation of the Greek word prohorizo. We we see the same prefix pro, meaning before or ahead of time. Horizo, uh, from which we get the English word horizon, and I'll say a little about about that in a minute. But So prohorizo means to, to mark out or to determine ahead of time. And so that root verb, horizon, from which we get the English horizon, I think is a, uh, gives us a helpful image in our understanding of predestination. If, if you think about, about the horizon, uh, the horizon is sort of a dividing line, marking off what we see from what we cannot see. In predestination, God sets a dividing line. He marks off his chosen people for salvation, and he draws them into the, the circle of his saving purposes. And so predestination means that God, God chooses who will be saved. Now, the, the, there's, a, there's, a lot that, there, there's a lot that we could say and, and address in, in terms of, of some objections to predestination, some things that we find difficult about predestination. In fact, I had a whole section that I had to cut out for this sermon because it just got way too long. Um, but there, there's, there's things that I just need to acknowledge that, yes, there are difficulties in our limited human finite understanding we cannot grasp the infinite eternal wisdom of God and so there are going to be things about predestination that we don't and cannot understand but predestination means that God chooses who will be saved we cannot deny the clear teaching of scripture Paul makes this clear in his letter to the Ephesians he says that God chose us in him, in Christ, before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. God chose us before the foundation of the world. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. So the language here is very clear, isn't it? God, God chose us before the creation of the world. He predestined us, meaning that he determined our destiny ahead of time in accordance with with his pleasure and will. So it is entirely the work of God. It is he who chooses us and he who marks out our destiny according to his pleasure and will. Paul expresses the same thought just a few verses later in Ephesians. He says, In Christ we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. So it is God who marks people for salvation in Christ according to his plan, working out the purpose of his will for the praise of his glory. You get the direction. Everything is Godward in Paul's language. Now all of this does not deny that we make real decisions to receive Christ as our Savior and to follow him as our Lord. We, we are not automatons that are just sort of mindlessly living out what God has programmed us to do. We just, you know, just robotically go about what God decrees. 
We make these decisions as an exercise of our will. But what Paul is saying and what scripture says is that our choosing of Christ is preceded by God's choosing of us. So it is a real decision for Christ. It's just that we would never make that decision if God hadn't first chosen us. So apart from this prior work of God's choosing, we would never choose Christ. We, We would have no desire for Christ. We would have no, not a single uh, inclination of the will to to come to Christ. As Jesus himself said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. I think the old hymn captures the meaning so well when it says, I sought the Lord, I sought the Lord, and afterward I knew he moved my soul to seek him seeking me. It was not I that found, O Savior, true. No, I was found of thee. Tis not that I did choose thee, for, Lord, that could not be. This heart would still refuse thee, had thou not chosen me. In his book, Knowledge of the Holy, A.W. Tozer writes about the the relationship between the the sovereignty of God and the free will of humans, which is a wonderful tension to to reflect on, to explore. There's a really great book by D.A. Carson. I think he did his dissertation on that tension between the sovereignty of God and and human responsibility, free will. And it would be a a great, although a little bit of a dense read, uh, but it's a great book that explores that tension. So in, but in his book, uh, uh, Knowledge of the Holy, Tozer writes about that relationship as well the, between the sovereignty of God and the free will of humans. And he offers this illustration, which I think is helpful. As with all illustrations, there's, there's cracks and flaws, I'm sure, but it's a helpful illustration. He, says, he invites us to imagine a ship. And, and he says there, there's a ship that, that, that is uh, sailing from, from, New York City to, uh, from New York to Liverpool. And his destination, he says, has been determined by proper authorities, and nothing can change it. It is, it is plugged in, it is arranged, it is predetermined. This ship is going to Liverpool, it, and, and it, nothing can, can change that. This is, he says, a faint picture of divine sovereignty, of predestination. Now, on board that ship, he says, there are hundreds of passengers, and they're not in chains. They're... Their, their activities on the ship have, have not been, you know, programmed into them by some sort of grand decree. They are free to move about the ship and to do as they please. They're, they're free to, to eat and to, to sleep and to, to have, you know, engage in conversation, to play games, to listen to music. They are free to move about that ship and do, and do largely what they want. All as the all the while, while the ship is carrying them onward to its predetermined port. There is then both freedom and sovereignty at the same time on that ship. I was talking with Lori about that, uh, about this little illustration, and she asked the question, well, are are they free to jump off the ship? (laughs) No, I don't think, no, they're not. Okay, there there are limits. Again, it's an illustration, right? So... Did they choose to go on the ship? No, you know, whatever. 
There is both, the idea, there is both freedom and sovereignty on the ship. And so it is, uh, Tozer says, with God's sovereignty over our salvation, the, the mighty ship of God's sovereign plan keeps its steady course to its predetermined end. But as the ship carries us along, we make our own choices out of the freedom of our will. And so we are predestined by the sovereign hand of God. We also see in this verse that Believers have been predestined for a specific purpose. Paul says those God foreknew, he also predestined, and here's the specific purpose, to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Now, we, we talked about that last week, so I'm not, not going to say much more at all about it now, but Paul says that this is the specific good and the specific goal for which we have been predestined. To be conformed to the image of the Son. Our, our destiny as believers is to become like Christ. God knows that this is our greatest joy and our supreme satisfaction. So this is where everything is driving. This is what we are predestined for, to be made like Christ, which is the greatest of all possible goods. The third link in the chain is Calling. So Paul says, uh, those God predestined, he also called. And the word called uh, is a translation of the Greek kaleo, and it, it can mean to call or to summon. And it refers here to really to, to God's summons to believe. And so the call of God is that effective moment at which a predestined person is awakened to faith. It is the, the raising of a spiritually dead person to life. Uh, now, there are, in the Bible, two kinds of calling as it relates to, to gospel witness and salvation. There are two kinds of calling in the Bible. There is first this, what we might call the external or the, the general universal call. This is an open invitation that is given to all people to repent of their sin, to turn to Christ, and to be saved. You know, this is what we do in, in gospel witness. This is what we do in evangelism and preaching. We share, we, we just, we extend the invitation to all. There's this universal, open-ended call. We see this universal call in the words of Jesus in John chapter 7 when he was at the festival of tabernacles in Jerusalem. And John says that, that on the last and the greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and he said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within him. This is a universal call. It is an open invitation extended to, to all who were there, all who were even just passing by. Anybody who heard these words of Jesus, the call came to them. It is issued to all, but of course it is only received in faith by some. Now, this is not the kind of call that Paul is talking about here in Romans 8. Paul is instead talking about the second kind of call, which in, in contrast to the first one is the internal, specific, effectual call. It is a call that not only issues an invitation, but, but moves the heart of the person to respond in faith. And so it is God effectively drawing those he predestined into a state of salvation, bringing to spiritual life those who would otherwise remain spiritually dead. I think we see an example of this in, in uh, Jesus calling out to Saul on his way to Damascus. 
You remember, of course, Saul was, was an enemy of Christ. He was a persecutor of the church. And, and the risen Jesus called out to him as he was riding along, called out to him, blinding him and knocking him down on the road and, and, uh, and, and really drawing him out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. A very dramatic, effective call. I think we see another example of this kind of call in the words of Paul to the Corinthians, this uh, in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 9, where Paul says, God, who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, is faithful. Paul is saying that the God has effectively called you into a saving relationship with Christ. You are those who have been effectively drawn out of death into life, called into fellowship with the son. And so God effectively calls his chosen people to himself. But here's the thing. How does he do that? Well, well, he typically does that through the agency of humans, doesn't he? He typically does that through the, the general call. At least, that's at least one of the main ways that he does it. This is why it is necessary that we preach the gospel and that we share the, the good news of Jesus with, with, with others through gospel witness and evangelism. In other words, predestination some have, some have wrongly and, and grossly distorted the doctrine of predestination to sort of minimize or excuse gospel witness. Well, whoever is going to be saved is going to be saved, and so we'll, you know, that's God's thing, and we don't need, really need to do anything. That, that is completely unbiblical. God saves his chosen people through the agency of our gospel witness, we are, which is why we are commanded to go and to share the good news and to make disciples. It's necessary that we preach the gospel and share the good news with others. As Paul will say later on in Romans, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, but how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. God effectively calls his chosen people to himself through the agency of gospel witness and preaching. His effective call comes through the general call. May we then strive to have beautiful feet that brings to others the good news of Jesus. The fourth link in the chain is justification. So Paul says, those God called, he also justified. Now in our study of Romans, we have given extensive treatment to this doctrine of justification, so I'm not going to say much at all about it here, but let me just simply refresh our memories as to what justification is. To be justified, the Greek dikaio, is to be declared righteous in God's sight. It's a legal standing issue. Uh, is to, be de to be declared righteous in God's sight through the substitutionary death and atonement of Christ. So Jesus took upon himself the punishment for our law-breaking sin, and he credited to us the perf his perfect righteousness attained through his perfect obedience to God's law. 
As Paul said to the Corinthians, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become what we were not, the righteousness of God. Jesus came what he was not, sin, so that we might become what we were not, the righteousness of God. That is a succinct statement of justification. We who are sinners are declared righteous through the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. I like the way the Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it when it says that justification is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. Which brings us then to the final link in the chain, which is glorification. So Paul says, again, that those God justified, he also glorified. Now, to be glorified is, is quite simply, I, I just give it to you very simple. To be glorified is, in this context, simply to share in the glory of Jesus. That, that's what Paul is driving at. That's what Paul is meaning by our glorification. Paul has already said that we are predestined, in verse 29, to be conformed to the likeness of the Son. And so the, the, the final goal of our salvation, the supreme good that God is accomplishing in us, is to be made like Christ and to share in his glory. Paul has been telling us in the previous sections that this is how our redemption story ends. This is the goal to which everything is driving. This is the climactic, never-ending, never-fading conclusion to God's work of salvation in our lives. We will be made like Christ. And we will get to dwell with him in glorified bodies on a glorified earth. That's, that's what Paul has been saying. All the, that, That's the, the beautiful climax that he has been driving us to through all these verses to say, hey, pointing us to Jesus, that you, we are going to get to be made like him and to share in his glory. We see glimpses of this hope of glory all throughout the New Testament. So it's not only Paul here in the section of Romans that is driving us to it. It is the whole New Testament. In fact, all of Scripture is driving us to this beautiful goal of being made like Christ and sharing in his glory. Here's just a few little, a small sampling from the New Testament. Peter said, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory. That will never fade away. Paul said, we who contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. John said, we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is in his glory, in all his glory. We will be sharing in that glory. Paul said to the Thessalonians, God called you to salvation through our gospel so that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his prayer to the Father the night before he was crucified, Jesus himself said of all believers, he said, I want those you have given me, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. Paul said to Timothy, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. 
And right here in our study of Romans, Paul has said we boast in the hope of the glory of God. And and just a few verses earlier in Romans chapter 8, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. See, everything, everything is driving us to this, this, this beautiful, glorious end of sharing in the glory of Jesus. John was given a vision of this eternal glory in the last chapters of the Bible. And so in his vision of the new heavens and the new earth, he saw, he saw the, the new Jerusalem, this, this beautiful city coming down. And this is what he said. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And a lamb is its lamp. And then John went on to say, he said, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. Just get that picture in your head. So here is this. We are now entering into the glory of, of, of Christ. And it's this, this beautiful garden-like setting, this, with this, this beautiful city with a, with a river of life flowing right down the middle of the street with trees on either side bearing fruit for the nations. And uh, John goes on to say that his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They'll not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light. And again, by his glory. And they will reign forever and ever. What a beautiful picture. What a beautiful hope of what, of what awaits us who have been elected by God. C.S. Lewis described this eternal glory as chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has ever read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. That's what Paul is describing here in Romans 8. That we who have been foreknown, called, predestined, and justified will be glorified. God will bring us to a state of everlasting glory on a glorified earth with, a, with glorified bodies dwelling with our glorified Savior. Now, it, it, it's interesting. One last thing about this this last link in the chain. It's interesting that, that although our glorification very clearly lies ahead of us in the future, we have not yet been glorified. We will be glorified. So it's, it's, it's ahead of us in the future, yet Paul describes it here in Romans 8 in the past tense, in the Greek, in the aorist tense, as if it has already been accomplished. And so Paul doesn't say those God justified, he will also glorify, which is what we would expect. He says instead that those God justified, he also glorified. Why does he do that? I think this is why. So certain is Paul that our glorification will take place that he describes it as if it has already happened. In other words, that the golden chain of God's sovereign grace over our salvation is an unbreakable chain. What God started in the past, he will certainly, without question, without error, without fault, without any, any glimmer of a doubt, he will see through to the end. 
As Paul said to the Philippians, we can be confident that he who began a good work in us, the good work of salvation in us, will carry it on to completion. He will. So certain is Paul that he will that he describes it as if it's already happened. It's as good as already having happened because it is an unbreakable chain. And so when we put these, these five links of the chain together, we see, we see so clearly the sovereign grace of God over our salvation. We see a God who, who moves irresistibly from one link to the next, from one stage to the next. He set his affection and his distinguishing love on us by his sovereign choice. And out of his electing love, he predestined us to be conformed to the image of his Son. And those he had marked out in predestination, he effectively called to himself. And those he effectively called, he justified, giving them the right standing before him through the blood of Christ. And those he justified, he will most certainly bring to a state of everlasting glory. And so in this way, not a, not a single one of his elect will be lost. Not a single one will slip through the cracks on this chain of salvation. As Jesus himself said, I shall lose none of all that the Father has given me. And so in the end, we find, whether you're a planner or not, we find deep comfort and assurance in these words of Paul. God is sovereign over every stage of our salvation. If you have responded to his call, if you have received Christ in true faith, then you can be assured that God has set his affection on you. And he will carry you to the finish line of faith, to the goal of glory. And again, if you have not, then, then, then maybe might this be the moment in which the general call is extended and you, God is working in your heart to effectively call you through that call to receive him in true faith. And if so, then you too can be assured that he will carry you to the finish line and the goal of glory. The 19th century poet Francis Thompson described the saving love of God as the hound of heaven, which I think is a fantastic image. Relentless in his pursuit, God in his sovereign grace hunts down his elect and draws them to himself. John Stott drew on that image to describe his own conversion. He said, my, my faith is due to Jesus Christ himself who pursued me relentlessly even when I was running away from him in order to go my own way. And if it were not for, his, for the gracious pursuit of the hound of heaven, I would today be on a scrap heap of wasted and discarded lives. That is true for all of us who have come to faith in Christ. We have been pursued by the hound of heaven. And without that pursuit, we too would be on the scrap heap of wasted and discarded lives. And so if we have come to a saving faith in Christ, it is only because the sovereign hand of God has drawn us. The hound of heaven has pursued us, and he who began this work of faith in us will carry us to the end. So let us live in bold hope as those called by God and destined for glory. Let's bow together.
Lord God, we, we praise you for this beautiful, unbreakable chain of salvation that we see in these words of Paul. And I pray, O oh Lord, that if, if we have come to, if we have received Christ in true faith, I, pr I pray, O oh Lord, that you would work within us an, an ever-deepening assurance that you who have begun this work of salvation in us will unfailingly carry it through to the end and so that we can assuredly hope of this beautiful picture of glorification, of sharing in the glory of Jesus. And I pray, O oh Lord, if there are some here this morning who have not received Christ in true faith, that might this be the moment at which you are effectively calling them. O oh Lord, may you work in their hearts to awaken them to the beauties of Jesus and give them, too, the assurance. Set them on this journey through this unbreakable chain that ends in astounding glory. O oh Lord, we, we praise you for what you have done in us and we say this morning that this work of salvation is not due to us, but to Christ in us. And so you get all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.